Can you guys hear me? These microphones, they always trip me up. I'll tell you what. Um, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, thanks for joining, joining us. If you're visiting, if you're a Western student, I'm pumped to have you guys here. Uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there, uh, there's Bibles in the back of the pew. Uh, and so you can flip there. We'll be beginning with verse 13, which I'll read here in a moment. Uh, but before I read, I think it's important that we'd understand some of the events leading up to the passage that we're about to read. And so what happens before this is something probably most of us are familiar with, but I think it's really helpful to kind of remind ourselves of what led to these events. And so three days before the passage that we're about to read, Jesus, kind of the main character of the Bible, was sent, sentenced to death by the religious leaders of the time, and by the governing authorities of the time. He went through kind of a mock trial, had a lot of accusations put on him, and he was betrayed by all of his closest followers. And then kind of as the night went into the morning, Jesus was eventually crucified on a cross, hung up in the air next to criminals. And since that point, after Jesus had died, his followers are kind of uncertain about what that means for their future. Three days later on Sunday morning, some people from the group, some of the women who were following Jesus, they go to the tomb to check on the body. You know, Jesus was a big deal at the time. We want to make sure no one's messing with the grave. And so they go back and they find something kind of interesting. The tombs in that day were above ground. And so there was like a door in front of it. And when they show up, the door is removed. The stone isn't there. And they look inside and they don't see Jesus' body. And these women, they tell, at least they eventually tell the other followers that they see angels. And the angels say, well, why are you looking for Jesus among the dead? He's actually living. And they go back to the disciples and they report it. And some of the other disciples, they go to the tomb and they find it the same way. No Jesus in the tomb. And that's kind of where we pick up. Jesus was dead. And now we've got a few of the followers saying, maybe Jesus isn't dead. And that's where we pick up in our story. And so I'm going to read verses 13 through 33, if you will follow along with me, beginning in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered, delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had help, hoped, we were hoping, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back seeing, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he broke bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. So, a 19th century philosopher, a guy by the name of Frederick Nietzsche, who's no fan of the Christian church, had a quote that I think is important. He said, there are no facts, there are only interpretations. And while I disagree with Nietzsche on the fact that I think there are facts, there's objective truth in the world that we need to recognize, I think he's on to something when he says that it's our interpretations that drive us. Our interpretations of facts typically are the thing that motivates us to action. We all know this to be true. If you were to get an email late at night from your boss or from your teacher informing you about some assignment, some project to work on, and you anxiously respond to it and get to work immediately, is what you're probably interpreting that email to mean, if I don't jump on this project right away, I'm liable to get fired. It's your interpretation of the email, not the email itself that drove you to action. Maybe it's your spouse or a roommate or a friend. They ask you to do some chore around your apartment or your dorm, and then you snap back and say, well, you don't think I do enough around here? It's not the fact they ask you to do something that drove you to such a reaction. It's your interpretation that you think they think that you're not contributing enough, that you don't do enough around home. You see, it's our interpretations of the facts that often drive our emotions, that drive our actions, that drive our beliefs. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to how we understand God. When we look at the facts of our lives, Maybe it's a diagnosis of cancer that you weren't expecting. Maybe it's a relationship that ended, but you weren't ready for it to end. Maybe it was your dream school and you got rejected. They didn't let you in. Maybe it's when you look at your own life, you see sin, you see struggle, and you see failure. And you begin to look at God and say, if God were really powerful, why isn't his plan working better? If God were really powerful, why does it feel like there's so many disappointments in my life? Why does it feel like things are failing over and over and over? Or maybe it's those inside the church, they look at God and they say, the tank of my hope in God is beginning to run low, and I don't know if I can deal with many more disappointments and keep trusting God, keep sacrificing, keep having my faith put me in difficult situations. For those of us who aren't Christians, we can often look at the Christians, at the Bible, at the Christian faith and say, if the world is as it really is, can I really believe that God has a plan that's succeeding? 
Can I really believe that God is victoriously accomplishing his purposes on earth? Can I really believe that? Is there really any reason to hope in God at all when it seems like there's so many disappointments and so many failures in the world? Well, contrast to those opinions, Luke wants us to see something different, a reversal of these ideas. And it's this. He wants us to see in this passage that what seemed like the greatest defeat was the very place that God accomplished his greatest victory. So in our moments of despair and disappointment and failure, we should look to God for hope. To put it differently and more specifically, we have to see from Luke's passage here that God accomplished life through death, through Jesus dying on a cross. And so if we want hope in this life, we need to look only at the cross of Christ to find that hope. And that's where he's going to point us today. And so to understand this passage, we're going to look at it through this lens of interpretation, kind of an interpretation battle. First, we're going to look at the lenses that these disciples are interpreting the events of Jesus' crucifixion through and what they kind of determine from that interpretation. And then second, we're going to look at Jesus' own interpretation of those same events and ask, what does this reveal about our hearts and how we view God's work in the world? And so to begin, we've got to look at the disciples' own interpretation of these events. And the summary statement I would put on it is this. They look at this and they say, the death of Christ was the death of our hope. A dead Savior is really no Savior at all. And maybe if this is true, that Jesus is dead in that tomb, I don't know if we can keep trusting God in the future. And so how do they get there? Well, we find them walking on a road to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem after these events have happened. And they're seven miles, an hour and a half journey from Jerusalem. They're walking along the road and they're debating and they're discussing the events that have just taken place. A lot of us were probably alive when 9-11 happened. It's the only thing that was on a TV screen. It's the only thing that people could talk about. Schools were shut down. You couldn't imagine anyone conversing about anything else. And we began asking ourselves questions like this. What does this mean for my personal future? What does this mean for job security? Are we going to go to war? What does this mean for our country, for our nation? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for my family? What are we going to do from this point forward? And these guys are having this similar conversation. They're saying things like, we've been following Jesus for the last number of years. But now if he's dead, what was all that for? Was it a waste? Was my life for nothing because I followed Jesus? They'd hoped that Jesus was going to do something for their nation. And so they're asking themselves those same questions. What's this mean for the nation of Israel? If Jesus is dead, do we have any hope looking forward to the future? And they've got a lot of questions. And as they're having this conversation, a third party approaches them. And they don't realize that it's Jesus. We realize it's Jesus because we're reading it after the account, right? But this guy approaches them and enters the conversation in the, the, the Bible says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That word recognize is the same word we would understand as the word know. This guy they'd spent these number of years with, heard him teach, watched him perform miracles, comes up right next to him, and they don't even know who it is. He's a personal friend of theirs, their follower. He had guided their whole life, and they can't even recognize him. It's not they're blind, like they literally can't see an invisible person standing next to him. It's that their hearts are keeping them from recognizing the facts that are right in front of them. And so Jesus comes up to him and says, so what are you guys talking about? As if he doesn't know, uh, as if he doesn't know the events that have happened. 
And it says as they're walking along, it's like, if you could read it, it's almost like they stopped in their tracks. Because imagine someone after 9-11 happened on the 12th of September, comes up to you and says, well, why is everyone watching the TV? What are you guys talking about? What's the big deal? And they look at him, and as he asks the question, you recognize it's like a doctor talking to his patient, asking them, where does it hurt? And he asks them this question, what are you talking about? And they're revealing their wounds to him. They look at him and said, do you not know? Or do you live under a rock? Do you not know the circumstances that have happened that have led to this? There was this guy, his name was Jesus of Nazareth. He performed miracles. He healed people. He understood the Bible better than anyone that's ever lived. We thought, we hoped, we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We staked our lives on it. We left our families for it. We left our friends for it. We lost career prospects for this to follow this guy, Jesus. But anyways, after they look back, they say, well, our religious leaders and the governing authorities, they killed him. He's in a tomb somewhere outside of Jerusalem right now. and We don't know what to do. We just left Jerusalem. We've got to get out of there. We are associated with this guy, Jesus, but we don't know what to do next. We're sad. We feel hopeless. Well, in that moment, when they say these things, as I already had mentioned, as Jesus asks them the question, he's like a doctor asking, where does it hurt? And when they respond to Jesus, they reveal these wounds. And we see the wounds and we see why they're sad, because we can connect it to their hope. In verse 21, <clears throat> it says, they were hope, or they were hoping, or we had hoped, uh, you could translate either way, that he was going to redeem Israel. And we read that from a Christian perspective, think he's going to save them from their sins, which we'll get to. But what the Jews of that day were expecting and what Jesus' followers were expecting is a redeemer to come and deliver them out of the political oppression that was the Roman Empire. They wanted someone that was going to free them from like this political tyranny. They wanted someone that was going to be a leader for the Jewish people to give them freedom from the things they didn't like that gave them governmental autonomy, those types of things. So when they said we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, we learned something about the Jesus that they were expecting. They had an expectation of Jesus as a political redeemer. And so when Jesus, the real Jesus, shows up next to them, they can't see the facts in front of their eyes. What we can see here is that they realize they can see the facts. They know Jesus died. They've heard people say he's not in the grave anymore. It's not the facts that are a problem. The issue is the way they're interpreting the facts. We, if you would have read earlier in the first couple uh, verses of chapter 24, they get these reports from the women. The grave's empty. But they are approaching this whole situation now from the lens of their disappointment that has bred doubt in their hearts. The facts are clear. Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's standing right next to them. The reason they're sad is because Jesus is dead. But he's not dead. He's talking with them, physically present before them. But their doubt is blinding them to the reality that's sitting right there. And just as a side note, a lot of times I'm talking to students, I'm talking to people as you read books, people say something like this. If God showed up in my life in a physical way that I could touch, then I'd believe. I just need God to show up, do a miracle. God, if Jesus were in the flesh before me, I'd give my life to it. And we think like we're on the other side of the kind of the scientific revolution, like we need something to touch, to feel, to believe because we're so sophisticated. Well, Cleopas and his buddy, they want something similar. They want a Jesus they can feel and touch. They know he's alive. But what you realize, 
is the facts aren't the problem. It's the way they're viewing the facts that's the issue. And what I would say to skeptical people is the reality is that God has made himself abundantly clear in the world and in his word. And the issue is the way we view those facts. It's not that they're not clear. It's that our doubt often blinds us to what's really there in the beginning. Well, back to what I was saying is that they had an expectation of Jesus that was a little off from the actual Jesus. Then expectation of Jesus that was a political ruler. And so what we see is that not only was their expectation a little misguided, it's also just too small. They have too small of an expectation of what it means for God to send a redeemer. When I was a kid, before one of my baseball seasons in high school, my grandparents said that they were going to buy me a new baseball bat. And I was pretty excited about that. And they said, so we're going to leave on Saturday morning. We're going to go to the sporting goods store and whatever town it was in. And we're going to get you a bat. It's like, okay, sounds good. And they're like, we'll leave at six in the morning. And I was like, that's, eh, you know, I don't know about six in the morning, high school, you know what I'm saying? So like, okay, fine. We'll go get the bat. I'll get back. I'll hang out with my buddies. You know, we have my girlfriend or whatever I was wanting to do. And so we get in the car and we go to the sporting goods store and we're on the road and they just blow past Champaign-Urbana where the sporting goods store was at. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was already a little upset about waking up early. But now, like, we're going to keep driving. And my grandpa's like, well, it's a nice day out. I figured we could just go on a little family drive. And I'm like, I don't want to go on a family drive. I want to get my baseball bat and I want to get home. Well, a few hours pass. And next thing you know, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my naive self didn't realize, you know, maybe something else is going on here. And I'm thinking, what are we doing in a different state on a Saturday? I've got all this stuff to do. And I'm frustrated. It's like, I don't want to talk to them. I'm angry on my phone, you know, text my friends or whatever. And they're like, well, let's just stay the night in Cincinnati. I'm like, well, we might as well. Now it's dark out. And we get in the hotel in downtown Cincinnati and all these people have Cubs hats on. I'm like, oh, there's a game in town tonight, isn't there? My grandpa goes, yeah. And then he's like, do you want to go? I was like, well, yeah, I want to go, but it's probably too late. And he looks at me and goes, do you really think we just drove to Cincinnati for no reason? He's like, we've been playing this for months. And I was like, okay, well, what about the baseball bat? And he was like, oh yeah, we're going to go to the Louisville Slugger factory and you're going to pick out a bat there on our way back from Cincinnati. And he's like, oh, and we're sitting in the front row of uh, right field at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And then what this whole story is here to illustrate is my expectations were so low and it caused me frustration because I thought we were just going to get a baseball bat. But if I would have seen the full picture, if I would have seen the interpretation of these events from my grandpa's eyes, I would have been able to persevere through the difficulties and the frustrations of the moment. These disciples, Luke makes it abundantly clear, aren't expecting a resurrection. They're expecting a king to reign in this life, but they're not looking for a resurrection. So when the resurrected Jesus shows up, their expectations aren't really met. And so when they're walking on the road and they don't know Jesus, it's their expectations. They're looking for the wrong person. So when he shows up next to them, they can't even see him because they weren't looking for him. And so the question we have to ask is how have the events of our life shaped the way that we view God? How have the disappointments, the failures, the rejections, the heartaches, the struggles caused you to misinterpret God, his character, and the way he works in the world? Can you think of ways that you've misinterpreted or had wrong expectations on Jesus or what he should be like? Well, as the story progresses, we recognize that Jesus is going to get his two cents in. He's not going to sit there and just let them debate amongst each other. It's he wants to throw in his interpretation of these events, and we'll let these interpretations kind of battle it out to see who's right here. Because they asked Jesus, 
where have you been? Well, you know, do you know what happened? And it's ironic, right? It's funny. Like Jesus kind of sitting there and he could have been like, let me tell you about what happened on Friday. He's like, I've got some thoughts. And where were you guys at on Friday? You know, it's like you all skedaddled out of town when I was hanging on the cross, but he doesn't go there. He interprets the events through a different lens. What Jesus wants us to see, his interpretation, the the summary statement I would give it, is that the disciples want to view the cross as the great mistake, the great defeat. But Jesus says it's not a mistake, it was necessary. Is that this is exactly the place where God's plan unfolded perfectly, and he wants them to see that. Jesus rebukes the disciples and prompts them to not interpret these events in light of their disappointment and heartache, but to interpret these events on in light of God's own word and say, did God's word say this was going to happen? And that's how we see it from God's perspective, not yours. If you look at verse 25, uh, Luke says this, and he said to them, quoting Jesus, oh, foolish ones, in slow of hearts, just I want to note that phrase, we're going to come back to that, in slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The disciples are tempted to not trust God and what Jesus is helping them see is that the cross gives you all the reason in the world to trust God because God had predicted that it was going to happen. He prophesied it. And so what Jesus does, he's walking to Emmaus with these disciples, is he starts a Bible study with them. Like, you know, we call it the greatest Bible study that's ever happened. And what he does is he takes the 39 books of the Old Testament and says, every dot over every I, every cross on every T, every exclamation point, question mark, and period, every single one of those was pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This isn't a mistake that I was given up to the Roman authorities and crucified. God, since the beginning of the Bible, since the beginning of time, had planned these exact events to happen. This wasn't a mistake. It was necessary. This wasn't a defeat. This is the place of God's greatest victory when the cross came to be. And so I'm sure as he's walking with them, he opens up Genesis, looks at the garden and say, you know, was the, the main point of the garden that they ate the fruit. Sure, it's important. But have you ever noticed in chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, I'm going to send someone to crush the serpent's head, to undo death, to get victory over sin and Satan in the world? Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's about me. Do you ever, you ever read the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac? But God provides a ram instead of Isaac. He says, well, I'm the new and better Isaac. And God the Father crushed God the Son on the cross for his people's sins. He goes on to Isaiah and looks at chapter 53 and looks at him more than just chapter 53, of course, in Isaiah. And says, have you ever noticed how Isaiah talks about the suffering servant that will suffer on behalf of God's people? Well, it was me. I came as the substitute to take the place for my people's sins. From Genesis to Malachi, every dot, over every I, every cross, and every T, it was all about Jesus. And Jesus is saying it wasn't a mistake. It was the place of God's greatest victory. What he's kind of doing here is like, if you've ever watched a movie or if you've ever talked to Xavier, there's these things called Easter eggs in movies. 
And they're like these kind of hidden things that we don't notice on the front end, right? But if we would have seen them, we would have known where the whole story was going. We would have seen the climax. We would have been so depressed when whatever character died or whatever happened because we would have seen all the hints that led forward towards this. What Jesus is doing, he's pointing out all the Easter eggs in the Bible that pointed forward towards this very moment, the climactic event of the whole Bible when the Son of God is crucified on the cross and saying, if you would have read the Bible, you would have seen it. You would have interpreted the events in light of the Bible. Augustine said this about these verses. I think it's so helpful. It says, as he began to, Jesus began to expound the scriptures to them uh, to recognize Christ precisely in the points on which they had forsaken Christ, the cross. The reason you see that they had despaired of Christ was that they had seen him dead. He, Jesus, however, opened the scriptures to them so they would realize that if he hadn't died, he couldn't be the Christ. If Jesus was just a savior that lived and never died, he wasn't the savior the Bible had been talking about all these years. And that's what Jesus wants them to see. And so we must learn that we must judge life's circumstances and disappointments, failures and struggles in light of God's word, not in light of how we feel about it or our disappointments or our doubts. So what do we learn? What does this passage teach us? What does it reveal about what the disciples wanted and where they may have been off on their interpretation to cause them to not know Christ? Well, it's this. The disciples' wrong interpretation reveals their hearts. It reveals what they wanted. They wanted a Christ with a crown. They didn't want a Christ with a cross. They wanted a Christ that would make their life easy. They wanted a Christ that would improve their social status. They wanted a Christ that would give them authority and position and health and wealth and prosperity. They wanted a Christ that would agree with their political positions. They wanted a Christ that would advance their educational prospects. They wanted a Christ that would give them a nice job in the suburbs and make their life easy and their relationships go well. They wanted a Christ with a crown that would make their lives better. They didn't want a Christ on a cross that died as a, vic- as a criminal next to a bunch of criminals outside of Jerusalem that no one wanted to associate with. They wanted a Christ with a crown, but they didn't want a Christ with a cross. But Jesus' rebuke is just this. They wanted a Christ that was too small. They conceived of a Christ who was too much like themselves. An easy life is a good thing. A comfortable life can be good in some circumstances, but it's not ultimate. And an easy life in political power failed to address the real problem at hand. It misses the whole dynamic. What's so interesting about this passage is that these guys want deliverance from all the things that make their life hard from the outside. They want a Christ that makes their life easy that gets rid of all the suffering brought on them. But what Jesus comes and helps them see is I didn't just come to deal with the things that happened to you. I come to dealt with the things that you do. I didn't come just to deal with the things outside of you. I came to deal with the things inside of you. What's so ironic about the passage is they want deliverance from the evil, rebellious people out there. And what they fail to miss is they're the evil, rebellious ones walking right next to Jesus. What's so interesting in this passage is this. They're leaving Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the hotbed. That's where it's going down at. Where Jesus was crucified, that's where the action's at. And these guys are like, see ya. You know, it looks like the show's over. I gotta go home. Gotta go find a job. Gotta get back to my family. Gotta figure things out. 
in his real Jesus, the physical Jesus, the Jesus that was crucified and now is alive, shows up, they're so skeptical and so doubtful, they can't even recognize him. What Jesus is coming to show them, the way he interprets these events, is I came to deal with doubters and skeptics like you. I came to die for you, for your sin. I didn't come to just deliver you from the things that make your life hard. I came, to die, I came to die in place of the reason that you weren't restored to God, that your sin, that's what I came to die for. As Augustine says again, the Emmaus disciples who are scandalized, or we could say are embarrassed by the cross, need to become like the penitent thief who through the cross saw that he might enter the kingdom what Augustine's saying is a chapter before this, when Christ is hanging on the cross, there's a thief. He's next to Jesus. He's crucified there as a criminal, rightfully so. And when he looks at the cross, he doesn't see something to be embarrassed by. When he looks at the cross, he doesn't ask Jesus, hey, get us down from here, man. Like, let's get rid of the cross. Let's get ourselves back in good social standing. If you're the son of God, let's improve our prospects a little bit. He looks at the cross and says, through that death, I can have life. Through that death, it will bring me prosperity in the next life to come. And he looks at him as the, the disciples. There's this irony again. They don't know Jesus. The thief on the cross said, I need Jesus to know me, to tell, my, to tell his heavenly father, yes, he's one of mine. And Jesus says, today I'll remember you. You will be with me in paradise. The saints need to learn from the thief what it is the glory in the cross. And that's where we find our hope. So where does all this lead? Well, the disciples, they wanted a Christ with a crown and not with a cross. But Jesus reverses their whole expectation and says, the only way that Christ gets a crown is through the cross. They envision earthly rulers who gain victory by avoiding death. Well, Christ is the king who gains victory by overcoming death and dying in place of death and rising again. The cross leads to the crown. And if you notice that when Jesus says it's necessary that the Christ would suffer to enter into his glory, the word there is doxa. It has this connotation of authority. It's not, it's not necessarily saying Jesus had to suffer to be praised. It said Jesus suffered to enter a new realm of authority and not just authority over life and political powers and your money and your health, authority over death itself authority over life itself. King Jesus gained the authority over life and death by dying on the cross and then being crowned. The disciples get what they want, but not in the way that they had expected and not in the way that maybe they were wanting at the time. So what do we see in this? Well, the, the chapter begins to end when they're walking on the road. They haven't noticed Jesus yet. As they're approaching uh, the village of Emmaus, it's getting dark out, and they urge Jesus. They say, stay with us. Eat a meal with us. We'd love to, you know, have this meal with you. And they sit down with him at the table. Pretty communal activity, a pretty relational activity. And Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he passes it out to him. And in that moment, their eyes are opened and they recognize him. It's a direct reversal of what happened in the beginning. And we ask, why is that? Why is it that they notice him then and not before? I think it's this. Jesus, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, basically to the end, had been predicting that he was going to die on a Roman cross. He was going to be crucified. And three days later, 
he was going to rise again. And the chief error that these guys had fallen into is they didn't believe Jesus' words. Their doubts and their disappointment and their fear caused them to mistrust Jesus's words and say they're not true. And so when Jesus breaks the bread, it reminds them that Jesus said, like this bread is breaking, so will my body be that's broken for you. They realize that as Jesus is breaking the bread to share a meal with them now, to restore the relationship now, so was his body broken that their relationship will be restored spiritually. Is the only way they're able to have a relationship with Jesus because of his broken body. What the disciples think, or what they were thinking, is that I can't believe because of the cross. It's too scandalous. It's too embarrassing. It's too weak and worthless and foolish. And what Jesus shows them is the only reason you can believe is because of the cross. It's the only means that we have. You're a doubter, a rebel, and a skeptic. But the cross died exactly for those reasons. The reason we can have a relationship is because of the cross. And so what do we see here? Well, they moved from being uh, slow of heart to their hearts burning. And that's a significant turn of phrase, right? What's Jesus' initial rebuke of them? Slow of heart, foolish to believe in all the scriptures had said. What is Jesus getting at here? We're saying this. Before, you were slow to trust God's word, to love him and to follow him. But now that I've explained the scriptures to you, now that you see the real Jesus, the Jesus with the cross and the Jesus with the crown, that's the real Jesus. They say we can believe in him. They move from slow hearts to burning hearts. And I think it's an act of repentance. It's saying, Jesus, we looked at your words and we doubted them. We didn't trust them. We didn't believe that you were going to die and raise because of our fear. But now they look back and say it was all real. And so they moved from hearts that were slow to believe to hearts that are burning with passion to follow Jesus. So we must ask ourselves the question, does your heart burn to know Christ? But lastly is this, Jesus is a king that bore a cross and wears a crown, but kings that bear crosses call their followers to bear crosses. Kings that bear crosses call their followers to bear crosses. And earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 9, Jesus says exactly that. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever tried to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The point that Jesus is making is that we have the ability as followers of Christ to do really hard things, to sacrifice more than we can imagine, to do things that the world will look at and say, that's death, to believe things in the Bible that people would say that's foolish, to share our faith when no one wants us to, to fight sin and have all of our friends make fun of us because they think it's ridiculous that you think you would find life there. Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life to the world will look like a series of small death after small death, after small death, it will look like you're bearing a cross. But Jesus says, God's greatest victory came through what seemed like the greatest defeat. What seemed foolish to the world was God's very wisdom. What seemed weak to the world was God's very power manifested in the cross of Christ. And so as we bear our crosses as Christians, as you fight sin as a Christian, as you give sacrificially as a Christian, as your life is radically different than it was before, and the people you love most say, what are you doing? We have the promise on the other side that God used crosses to bring life. And so as we bear our crosses, we look on the other side of the king who bore a cross is now sitting in glory and realize that death came through life.
And so as we bear our crosses, which are small deaths, we have the promise on the other side that more joy, more happiness, more life will come on the other side of that cross because King Jesus reigns as a resurrected king, the king with the cross and the crown. The cross is the point where the world sees the great defeat of God and his plan, but it's precisely in the cross where God accomplished his greatest victory. Let's pray. Father, what seems foolish to the world was your wisdom. God, when the world looks at the Bible and says, how could you believe that? That's the very place, God, that we see life, joy, and happiness. The most weak, despicable, embarrassing event in the history of the world was Jesus hanging with criminals on a cross. Yet at that very moment was the peak of your unfolding plan to save sinners like us. God, move us from being slow of heart to having hearts that burn with passion to follow Christ. As we were once caught leaving Jerusalem, let us be found going back to Jerusalem boldly for the sake of Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.